0: Hey, this is Beth Golay. On December 3rd 2021, I spoke with James Kennedy about his book Dare to Know. The podcast was supposed to drop on December fourteenth, But because of a glitch with the audio, it didn't happen. We thought the audio was lost. But thanks to the brilliant mind of Luann Stevens, who happens to be my boss, the audio has been recovered and the podcast is ready for consumption. Dare to Know has since been released in paperback, but this is a better late-than-never scenario because I loved this conversation. You'll hear me say this during the conversation. I loved this book. You can find a copy of the podcast on our website on the date that it was supposed to air, but we're publishing it today, too, because it deserves its time at the top of the episode list. I hope you enjoy it.
1: This is Marginalia, a production of KMUW Wichita.
0: Marginalia.
1: Notes in the margin of a
0: book. Notes, commentary, and similar material Marginalia. written in the margin Comments of a Comments and notes which are incidental, incidental or additional, or additional, or additional to, the to the main topic. In the margin of a book. Imagine you could know the exact date and time of your death. Would you want to know? In James Kennedy's science fiction novel, Dare to Know, that question is the foundation of his imagined world. It was inspired by his own background in physics and subsequent research into the historical intersection of science and philosophy, including the occult. I spoke with James Kennedy about his fascination with this combination, how he taps into his characters, and more. I'm Beth Goulet, this is Marginalia, and here's our conversation. Regular marginalia listeners know that I avoid spoilers at all costs, so I think we're going to be doing a little bit of dancing around for this conversation. So can you start us off with a description of Dare to Know, you know, maybe both the book and the business?
1: Yeah, uh, so Dare to Know is about a uh, down-and-out salesman who works for a company, also called Dare to Know, um, that can calculate the exact time of your death um there's just one rule you're not allowed to look up your own death date but late one night feeling desperate for many reasons our hero who's a salesman for the company looks himself up and finds out that he had died 23 minutes ago this math is never wrong so why does it fail for him and so that sets him off on this journey both across america and through his own memories to find out why this is the case and in particular to meet up with his old girlfriend julia who he uh, kind of loved and lost while he was rising through the ranks of Dare to Know. She's the only one who could really confirm this calculation. And um, it starts in a straightforward way like that. And it kind of becomes progressively really trippier and more like a David Lynch fever dream as it goes on. With, with like stuff like, uh, I don't know, like the occult side of like science or like Haunted Video Games or uh, The Lost Native American City of Cahokia.
0: And you've already given away more than I thought you would because it took a while for us to realize that he should have died 23 minutes ago. So that's kind of, that's fun to know. Okay, so.
1: <laughs> well, you know, I wasn't going to give it away um, when, I, when I was selling it. Uh, but then like the, the publicists say, we got to give this away. Like, this is what sells the book that he's already dead. And I was like, you know what? You're right. And spoilers like that shouldn't matter because the concept is what puts the butts in the seats. And then once you're actually reading it, then something else takes over.
0: You know, as I was reading this, I was I was going to ask you about your history, like if you had any history in coding. But then I read at the very back of the book the about the author section. And I understand that before becoming a writer, you were a software engineer with a degree in physics and philosophy. So now, even though I'm really curious, I'm not going to ask you what it's like inside your head, but instead, talk to me about writing a book in which you were able to like, tap into all of your areas of study. I mean, this is a science fiction book, but it, it has deep thoughts. Thank you. I think <laughs> I,
1: <laughs> I wanted to write something that pulled from like all of my life. And in many ways, the narrator, who is an awful person, in some ways, but he's kind of like a photo negative of myself and it maybe made a lot of the wrong choices or had maybe the opposite attitudes that I do, but I still feel a lot of kind of kinship to him. And let me put it this way. I remember in high school reading Brave New World and really being into it because Aldous Huxley really had a command of the science. And I always wanted to be a writer ever since I was a kid, but I realized if I was going to be a writer, I need to know something about the world that wasn't just books. And so I think that's part of the reason why I became a physics major, like I kind of wanted to be a physicist. But by the time I was done with my bachelor degree, I realized I didn't have what it took. And then becoming a software engineer, becoming a computer programmer is like the last refuge of a scoundrel for a physics major. And there are so many interesting things you learn about the world and so many interesting ways of looking at the world that you wouldn't get if you had a humanities degree. And I kind of wanted to put all that in there especially things that I found out through the intersection between physics and philosophy. Like a lot of people who were well-known or pivotal scientists were like big into the occult. Like Newton, a lot of his writing wasn't about gravitation or the three laws of motion. It was about biblical alchemy and weird geometry and stuff like that. And other people like Kepler or Wolfgang Pauli or whatever, all these physicists had weird fascinations with the occult. And I wanted to kind of weave that in. And so I think, when you're a writer, everything that you've ever read and everything that you've ever lived is all going to go into the pot and it's going to stew up. And what's going to come out, it's going to be yeah, you know, what you've learned, who you've met, like how you feel about life. And I think it just kind of rose naturally out of that.
0: You know, as I was reading that part, you mentioned Newton and Kepler, and I didn't take the time to look to see if that was really true. So that is true. That is true. Wow, that's fascinating.
1: There's a a famous uh, lecture by uh, John Maynard Keynes about Newton that he did. We kind of like brought this up for the first time. I forget what it's called, but it's really worth reading. And then like, there's been books written about it since. But even like somebody like Jack Parsons, person who founded the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, was a full on Satanist, hung out with Alistair Crowley and uh, L. Ron Hubbard. I think sometimes people who would kind of push the boundary intellectually, they're pushing in all directions. And that's maybe where the new ideas come from. You have to be a little screwy to get the original idea.
0: Do your characters have their own lives and you just listen to them? Um, that was a joke. Because <laughs> Well, there, there's that part in the book where, um, where. It was, oh, yeah, yeah, it yeah. Was... <laughs> Because this was funny. I mean, your character was describing this other person and said, well, he at least didn't like fall into all of those different writer cliches. And I thought, well, I have to ask that. And I'm sorry.
1: (laughs) Uh, I I, I think in in one sense, yes, because I I don't take everything that my narrator says at face value about art. Like he really dislikes Pixar movies. And, and I like him. Or, you know, he has a weird thing about the Beatles. I like the Beatles, but I do get a little impatient if somebody says, oh yeah, the ineffable spoke through me, you know, and I, I'm just like doing stenography for some character who's speaking through me. I, it, it feels to me that writing is very constructed and you're trying to get a specific effect. And sometimes you do feel that inspiration and, and you're writing really quickly. And maybe you have the sense that somebody's speaking through you, but it's just, again, it's just you, it's all you and all the people you've met, and all the things that you've read, and you're just synthesizing them. And yeah. But there are a lot of things that writers say that I do get impatient with. That, that might be one of them.
0: <laughs> well, I thought it was funny. And there were several <laughs> laugh out loud moments in the book. So this oh, is, it's, it's serious, it's deep, it's funny, it's just kind of a complete package. So, you know, one theory that the narrator has is this, to do the math makes the math come true. Can you talk to me about that? Is it some variation of post hoc ergo propter hoc?
1: It's more like quantum theory, like kind of like the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum theory, which is kind of like the standard interpretation, is that like some events don't happen or aren't resolved until they're observed. Like you've probably heard of the Schrodinger's cat paradox, like you put a cat in a box there is some you know, poison that a quantum event will make the poison either be released or not until you open the box. It's not that you don't know that the cat is dead or alive, that the cat is neither dead nor alive until it's observed. And Schrodinger brought that up to say, look, isn't this absurd about quantum theory? But the preferred interpretation these days is like, no, some quantities, some measurements don't exist until they're measured. And so I wanted to take something like that and bring it into the theory of predicting one's death that we have and dare to know. because It's going to have to be something weird. And I wanted it to be something that was a commentary on modern science and modern mathematics. And so I made up these particles called thanatons that are intimately bound up in human death. A- and then the way that you access them is that it's through this kind of subjective mathematics, math that can't be done by a computer. Because I didn't want it to be done by an app or something like that. That would seem banal. And so it has to be this intense one-on-one interview between the person who's calculating it and the subject who wants to know the day they die and the calculator says some nonsense phrase the other person responds the calculator looks it up in all these very elaborate books that he has and then has to manually calculate the next thing and i wanted to have it feel like like the voight comp test in blade runner i don't know if you remember like there's a these intense one-on-one interviews which you're trying to figure out whether somebody's a robot or not And I wanted to have something like that, but maybe a little bit more absurd, a little more kind of odd. It couldn't be a normal science. It had to be something that was bordering on the occult or the mystical that almost feels like a pagan ritual. And that would connect up with the occult connection to physics that I was trying to bring throughout the book.
0: You mentioned pagan ritual. Can you talk to me about this civilization? I mean, I assume that's true as well, that this-
1: Yes. So um, from 1050 to about 1400, right outside of what is now St. Louis, uh, there was a Native American city called Cahokia. And it was about 20 or 30,000 people at its height. And that was bigger than London or Paris at the time. There's a kind of a cliche that Native Americans didn't have cities, but they did. And I was kind of shocked when I found out about this in my 30s, because I grew up in Michigan, not that far away, I grew up in the Midwest. I should have known about this, but we're not really taught Native American history. And I wanted to bring that in because Cahokia, the seat of an empire in the Midwest lasted for about 500 years. That's the longer the United States has been around. And in this book, I'm talking about a person finds that, you know, he should have already died and he's kind of looking back on his life. And I kind of wanted to take that and look at it on a national level, the United States and its cycle of birth and death and regeneration or whatever, or what's happening on this land that we live on now, that's kind of been willfully erased and also in the universe at large. And so it's a fun thing in a story to take a thing and you see it writ small, and then you also see it writ large.
0: You know, one theme, I guess you would call it from your book that I found fascinating are the four distinct stages of civilization, like a, a, a dawn to decadence of sorts. Mm-hmm. You know, the initial description covered three pages, and it's really deep. But I'm wondering if you could perhaps simplify it for us. Not, not like gods, heroes, men, chaos, simple, but maybe a little bit more than that.
1: There is an Italian philosopher named Vico and he kind of came up with an early version of this and it's kind of been adapted by many other people like Joyce used it to structure Finnegan's Wake and um, there's a book called The Fourth Turning of like bad pop sociology but it uses this idea too and, and then I kind of adapted it and made it my own for Dare to Know and the way I adapted it is like before there's society there's this chaos everybody's kind of running around they don't know you know where they belong they don't know how to get together and then you have this mythos this overwhelming kind of idea that's arbitrary but it binds people together like everything in this book is true or you know sacrifice an animal at this rock every wednesday um, and then that brings the first stage the age of the gods which the society is very strong and everybody's kind of on the same page and you feel spontaneously in sync with everybody and that leads to the next stage like the age of heroes or the age of aristocrats in which what used to be a ritual that everybody spontaneously did together now is kind of like you have a clergy and they kind of enforce the rules of this ritual that you can't feel that same inspiration again. So you have to make a liturgy out of it. You have to uh make a ritual out of it. And that leads to the next age, a democratic age, age of man, which people start being skeptical of this ritual and start thinking, well, wait, what is this? And once they start kind of questioning it, then everything starts to fall apart and you go back to chaos again. And then maybe a new mythos will come out later, but it will be a different kind of mythos and you can see this kind of with civilizations in a way and it's not like an original idea of mine but you can also see it in relationships or just like music scenes or or literary scenes or groups of friends coming together and then splitting apart or romantic relationships and so i thought i didn't want to structure this book like a typical like hero's journey i wanted to have a unique structure and so i structured it according to this kind of four part rise and fall of
0: civilizations so um Your narrator said this quote, we've made ourselves this fragile on purpose because we secretly want our destruction because we want to participate in the turning of the cycles. We want to be the one who pushes the button that moves into chaos. Now I think there was a black plague reference right before the sentence was in the book. And it's difficult to read that passage and not think about our current situation. You know, with this book, how much, Nonfiction is included in science fiction?
1: That's a really good question. I, uh, well, number one, I wrote that whole part before COVID. So you do find people seem to be willfully wanting to die. Uh, like there is a kind of death wish that we don't talk about enough, especially when people feel a little bit hopeless. And how much nonfiction is in science fiction? I think a lot. That's what gives it, I think, its heft because science fiction is fundamentally about ideas. Like, I don't think people go to science fiction for the characters. Although I tried to make something that was kind of very character-based, like Arthur C. Clarke, Isaac Asimov, even like Shi Xin Liu, their stories are great. The characters, you know, I could take them or leave them. But if the characters are too good, they'd get in the way. I love a, a really good ideas-driven book. So when, say, Isaac Asimov wrote the Foundation trilogy, he had been reading Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. And he said, well, what if I do this in a galactic level? Or Arthur C. Clarke, you know, he knew a lot about space travel and spacecraft and things like that. And so when you have something like Rendezvous with Rama, you can feel the science behind it. And that gives it some kind of heft and it doesn't feel like a space opera, which is what Star Wars would be, which is great, but it's not science fiction, right? You enjoy digging into these ideas. I think science fiction takes advantage of nonfiction in a way that maybe other things don't because it transforms it like the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Ah, but on a galactic scale, suddenly it becomes science fiction, and suddenly it starts hopping. It, it gets some juice to it. Even if you're not Isaac Asimov, you start getting a million ideas in your head.
0: So early in the book, our unnamed narrator was recalling his child's eye impression of the druggy and ugly 70s. And he says that as an adult, he realizes that a child has no political context. So first of all, do you share your narrator's view on the 70s? And what do you think our kids will remember about this time when they're adults?
1: Oh, that's such a good question. So yeah, our, our, in that passage, a character is kind of reflecting on, you know, looking at the cover of Sergeant Pepper or, or like listening to like Bob Dylan's, everybody must get stoned. And as a child, I found that stuff terrifying. There's a scene in the book in which the main character as a, like a four-year-old breaks his sister's copy of Sergeant Pepper. I did that. Like I hated <laughs> it and I broke it and I felt so good when I broke it. I love the Beatles now, but like as a kid, this old culture is fighting battles that you're not a part of. And, and, and they're reacting against things that you have no idea about. And so when Bob Dylan is saying, everybody must get stoned and you're like five years old listening to the radio, I like, what is he talking about? Drugs are bad. This guy seems so, why does he seem so pleased about it? Why is he so invested in me getting stoned? I, I don't agree with this. And so I think similarly, I look through my daughter's eyes at our culture that I have two daughters, 10 and 12. Yeah. What will they think of us? I think, maybe there will be just an absolute revolt against the internet. Maybe there'll be this kind of like cult of refusal in which you're just like, we're not going to even touch it anymore. I think the interesting thing about it is that we don't know how this stuff is gonna hit for people who are younger than us. Like, I, I, I do remember like showing my girls Rushmore, thinking, oh my God, this is such a delightful movie. I loved it so much. And they're like, that was terrible. That, that, <laughs> and I was like, what? And they like other Wes Anderson movies. They're like, they're like, that kid is creepy. He broke into his teacher's house and got into her bed. I was like, well, I guess that is creepy. <laughs> I, mean, I should be showing this to my 10 and 12 year old. But like, it does hit differently for them because Rushmore was fighting different cultural battles than the ones that they're fighting. And um, the things that are important to them are, are different than the things that were important for me when I saw that, you know, was in my 20s in the 90s.
0: The Sunday Times, named Dare to Know as one of the 10 best sci-fi books of 2021. So congratulations on that. Are you receiving a lot of feedback from across the pond, or? (laughs) Yeah, okay, well, that's the thing. Like, in
1: Financial Times and The Guardian and the Times of London all have these wonderful reviews. Not getting much here. And what I'm realizing is that uh, I think there's a more robust reviewing culture for science fiction in the UK but also just book reviewing in general has been eviscerated in this country for the past, you know, five or 10 years. But I'll, I'll take my reviews where I can get them. It's always nice to be on a list. <laughs> and and I, I think it has to also do with like my publicist in the UK is just really working her butt off. <laughs> like she, she, she's really, you know, bringing it. And I know that my publicist in the US is as well. And, she, and she's scored a lot of things that maybe sometimes you don't, see as visually as a review in the New York Times but they are important to getting the word out but yeah I I was astonished
0: you know I tend to not gravitate toward sci-fi because I think I just have this block in my head but I loved this book oh thank I mean you. it was it just felt like a really really good book to me thank you just really well written and I don't know what I why I See, this is why I need to not include this because I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. Well, wait a second, but- you're not
1: going to include you saying you love this so
0: much? <laughs> Come on, throw me a bone
1: here. Like okay, I was I'm like an interview with Lauren Groff, and, and like you're saying all airy oh. neutral questions, and at the end you said, "I, I really love this book." And
0: I'm like, and Thank I never God do you that. finally said it. <laughs> oh, I think what I'm trying to say is. Why do I shy away from science fiction? Do I think I'm not going to understand it? Is it because I've never read it? I think I know why.
1: It's because <laughs> it's not, the, the characters in science fiction and the human situations are often not very interesting. Um, there, there will be all of this uh, really brilliant world building or technological explanation or kind of mind blowing idea, but the characters aren't there sometimes. Because to be able to do the mind-blowing ideas and the character, like that's hard to pull off. But also sometimes, frankly, character gets in the way of the mind-blowing ideas. I didn't want to write that kind of book. I wanted to write something more like Arrival or The Story of Your Life by Ted Chiang, that short story, which the movie Arrival is based on. Uh, have, you, have you seen Arrival?
0: I have not. You could see on Zoom. I was like, I had this blinks.
1: <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Right. You've seen that, that movie, right? I, I'm aware of it. I've not oh, okay. seen it. Okay, so it's like our. See, world... I
0: really do. I really do shy away from this.
1: <laughs> Ask me if I've seen Star Wars. Have you seen Star Wars? Nope. That makes you cool, actually. <laughs> uh, like, it, it's such. A, I mean, I I like Star Wars, but it's such a culturally inevitable product right now that not to have seen it is is to be like a true countercultural person, and I applaud you for it. Never see it. I hope you never see it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's like, if somebody says, I don't like David Lynch movies, I love David Lynch movies, but I totally understand why people hate them. You know, um, this guy doesn't make any sense. You know, what's going on? You know, I can't sit in this mystery. That's fine. People, I mean, there's all kinds.
0: But okay. Here's another thing that I want to say about this book, because yes, science fiction, but I'm trying to figure out the, the point on the timeline where it becomes science fiction because there are so many things in this book that, I mean, everything you talk about the 70s, you know, the city outside of St. Louis, everything, it's just being able to identify the death date. That's the only thing that makes this really science fiction, in my mind. This could just be a contemporary novel, except for that one little thing.
1: I, that's the kind of science fiction that I like. Like, that's why I, um, I was thinking about Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. It's essentially our world but there's this one technology you can erase memories that you don't like. And and, and two lovers decide to erase memories of each other, but then they come back together again, even though fate is always gonna keep bringing them back together again. Um, And I love ideas because I think with science fiction, what it does for me that I love is that you can use it to take an ordinary thing, an ordinary emotion or whatever that could be dealt with standard literary fiction but by kind of giving it this kind of fantastical twist or some kind of thing like a memory erasing thing or knowing the, the time of your death, you can kind of make things more concrete and you can deepen or intensify that emotion or kind of throw it into some kind of sharp relief that underlines it in a way that it wouldn't be able to if it was just a story about, well, here's a guy who's looking back on his life and he has some regrets, you know? Um, this is a way of like, Yeah, your life is already over. Now look at it. And is your life really over? And how much are we gripped by nostalgia? And how much does nostalgia deform us? And how much does it define us?
0: Can you talk to me about the the 92nd Newberry?
1: Yes. So about 10 years ago, I started up this film festival called the 92nd Newberry Film Festival, in which kid filmmakers create short movies to tell the stories of Newberry winning books in about 90 seconds. And we started it out in just like three cities, New York, Chicago, and uh, Portland. And now it's, it's grown to like many, many cities all over the country. It's for kids up to 18, although adult help is okay. And a lot of them put crazy fun spins on the book. So like Charlotte's Web, but in the style of a horror movie, you know, which makes sense because the first line of Charlotte's Web is, where's Papa going with that ax? And you know, this <laughs> pig thinks he's gonna get killed and eaten throughout every chapter. Um, or, you know, uh, Tale of Despero, but in the style of Les Miserables, or, you know, Holes, but as like stop motion Legos. I get hundreds of these entries every year, and I pick the best of them. We, I take it on this road show. We do these big screenings at libraries around the country, attended by hundreds. Of course, last year, we couldn't do that, so all the screenings had to be virtual, but uh, it's kind of really taken on a life of its own, and uh, a momentum of its own, and it's kind of what kept me going between my first book, the YA fantasy, the order of Oddfish*, and dare to know because I haven't published anything in those 10 years but I was doing this film festival and I kind of kept me as part of the literary world and also part of the children's literary world. And it was kind of a weird thing for me to write dare to know which is an adult book. I kind of resisted writing an adult book for a long time. And then I found once I started writing a book for adults everything flowed in a way that it wasn't for kids. I think I'll go back to writing kids again, but. Yeah, there's something about the freedom of writing for adults that, that really uncorked me here. But that's, that's getting off of. Uh, so yeah, we, we, every, every year we, we, we do these screenings and like I do filmmaking workshops throughout the year with kids, uh, teaching them how to make these movies, and it's become a lot of fun.
0: So before I wrap up with my final question, is there anything you want to talk about that I haven't asked?
1: You know, I've listened to a bunch of your episodes and you always ask that. I do. And I got to say, you nailed it. These are great questions. There's nothing else really that I, uh, that I feel I need to get off my chest.
0: Okay, so one final question. Would you dare to know?
1: I have. Um, there is a weird website called deathclock.com. And it's like an artifact of the good internet. Like I think it went up in 2006. Like before the internet started to feel gross. And you put in like your age, your weight, your sex, a couple of other things. And it tells you what date you're going to die. And so I have it written down here. I am going to die December 19th, 2046. So I don't really want to know when I'm going to die, but I have to admit, like having that specific date, December 19th, 2046 in my mind, it does concentrate the mind. Like, you know that you're not going to live forever, but if it's kept nebulous, you can kind of like, ah, it's it's tomorrow's problem. But if I say December 19th, 2046, and I know it's not going to be that far off that, then it really does bring it home to you that, yeah, there is going to be a specific date. And it's good to think of your life in finite terms and not infinite terms, because we only have so much time on this earth and we can't do everything. If I want to go live in New Zealand, I've got to do it soon. You know, I can't wait forever.
0: Okay. So if we're both still around on December 20th, 2046, let's get back together and talk about this. It's a
1: date. (laughs)
0: Okay. Well, James Kennedy, the book is Dare to Know from Quirk Books. Congratulations. I loved it. Thank you
1: very much. This is a delight. You know what's great about it? You actually read the book. Uh, <laughs> I, I know you always do, but you know, sometimes you get in these interviews and clearly they didn't read the book. You read the book <laughs> very thoughtfully. It makes me feel valued. Thank
0: you. That was James Kennedy, author of the book Dare to Know, which was published by Quirk Books. Thanks for joining us for Marginalia. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editor is Luann Stevens, and our producer is Haley Krausen. This is Marginalia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Goulet.